Whoa. With that, she's telling you that I'm older than dirt. <laughs> My name's Juanita and I'm a member of the 31W Al-Anon Family Group in Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, everybody. Hi. And uh, I'm a member in good standing. I'm the treasurer of that group. Uh, I just recently, I've only belonged to three groups in my whole life. I've only had three home groups. But um, uh, we had to move about five years ago because of my husband's lung problem and he couldn't go to smoking meetings. So, uh, and I hope you all notice that I have the time up here. <laughs> and when, when it comes to 12 o'clock now, don't you all go looking at your watches and say, my God, she's talked for an hour. Because it's not that true. We just got started. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, because of his lungs, we had, he had to change and go to a non-smoking group. And we had always gone to this group anyway. We're very, we're very positive uh, AA and L and on uh, uh, meeting goers. We love to go to meetings. And uh, so it was no problem to just ask you know, just go to this other group and, and make that my home group. So, but we've only had the three home groups, and I've, I don't know about anybody else, but my home group is so important to me. And for the last three, well, about the last two years when I've talked, I have not been able to say what I always said about the other home group, that it was the best home group in the world, and it was the best home group in the world because they knew the worst of me and they loved me anyway. And you know I can say that today now about my, my new home group. It is the best because these people do know the worst of me, and they love me anyway. And for that, I am so grateful. Uh, now, we have nine children. That will keep you from counting because uh, we had them one at a time. And uh, our kids all grew up in Alateen. And uh, my husband says he's an alcoholic, and I agree with him. <laughs> it was the nicest thing I ever called him. Uh, you see, uh, when I had, well, I would do anything to get a reaction from this man, and I didn't get many. He was a very calm, uh, peaceful person. Uh, all he wanted to do was come in the back door, make it to the bed, and pass out. That was his way of coping with our lives. But uh, I wanted to tell him what he was doing wrong. And so uh, one day I was telling him what he was doing wrong, and I called him an SOB, and I wasn't using the initials. And uh, he reacted, and he drew himself up, and he said, Don't you ever call me that. That's cursing my mother. That's not cursing me. Well, God knows I wanted to curse her. She'd raised two of them. That counts up to four now. So I called him that every chance I got, and I added a few more names onto it, and I added a few more uh, descriptive adjectives in there, and I became very, very prolific at this blue language. Uh, and before I go any further, let me uh, thank the committee for inviting us here. <laughs> I always forget to do that because I don't think, I'm really not grateful at this point. <laughs> but when I look around the room at all the, the loving faces of friends, I really, I'm not that nervous today. I, maybe that's a bad sign, but uh, that I'm going to take charge and give this talk instead of turning it over to God. 
but uh, I do appreciate the, the the lovely room we've got, and uh, we got a, a gorgeous little glass uh, dolphin and uh, a basket of fruit. And uh, I think uh, Joe told me that uh, eat it fast because they got it cheap. It was old. <laughs> it's a joke. It's good fruit. <laughs> uh, but I've done that, and I do want to point out that you have a couple of speakers coming up that, you know, they have been dry so long, they're both a fire hazard. <laughs> Dave and Liz. <laughs> She's going to get even. <laughs> she wouldn't treat me bad, she said. Oh, but uh, anyway, this is, this is the way I became with this problem of alcoholism in the home. Uh, now, I, did, I didn't marry this man uh, and, you know, think that everything was going wonderful. I knew he had a drinking problem when I married him, but I was sure that the love of a good woman would change him. And it did. He got worse. <laughs> because Lord knows he had the love of a good woman. I thought I was a good woman. I really did. Now, the fact that I did all this cursing, I only did that because he was drunk. You know, it wasn't my fault I did it. I only lied because you have to lie to bill collectors or they do weird things like turn your electric off or shut your water off or move you out of your house. And uh, I had grown up with a, a grandmother that I didn't know other people moved in the daytime because we didn't pay our rent and we moved at night. And so I didn't like living like this, and I, wasn't, I didn't want to live like this. So the fear of economic insecurity was very much there in my life. Um, I, we, we married like this, and we went along with all these. It wasn't all bad, though. Our marriage, when we got married, uh, we were young. We, uh, we had lots of fun. We went to lots of parties. We traveled a lot. And a year later, we had a little girl. And she didn't even take the wind out of our sails. We just packed that baby up and off we went with her. And she went every place we'd ever been going and uh, even to the bowling alley. And you know how smoky they get at night. But we put take that little bassinet, put her in it, and go right on and did, did our thing. Uh, nothing, this baby didn't slow us down. Uh, but when the third, second one was born, now this slowed me down. And so I sat Bob down one night after supper, and I said, Honey, I have to talk to you about this. We have two children now, and we're parents. You know, like he didn't know it. And uh, I said, We have to settle down. And I said, We're going to have to stay home, quit running around to all these, you know, parties and things, and we're going to have to be parents to these children and take care of them, make sure they get in bed at 8 o'clock. And he said, that's a really good idea. And he let me do it. Uh, he went right on doing what he'd always been doing. And I'm the one who stayed home and put him to bed at 8 o'clock. And I would like to tell you that I loved my children. But I don't really know that I did. They were a responsibility. Uh, they were a resentment. Because he was out there having fun. And I was here putting these children to bed. Now, we had one every year, and uh, you would think that somewhere along the line I might have wised up. But uh, <laughs> I, 
I was sharing with uh, um, um, Daisy last night about uh, Tom Moore from Pulaski, uh, Tennessee, used to tell a story that was our story. He gave it to me. He said, you can have it, honey. He says, I don't have much use for it anymore. But uh, this nun was in the hospital, and uh, the lady was laying there in the bed in labor, and there's this racket going on out in the hallway, and the nun says, you just hang on, honey. I'm going out and get rid of that drunk. And she said, oh, that's probably my husband. I haven't talked to him for a year. And the nun turns around and looks at her, looks at her belly, and kind of opens her eyes real wide, and the lady says, oh, sister, we never did get that mad. (laughs) So I guess that's why they just kept coming. But you see, I wanted a big family. I was an only child and an only grandchild in the city that my grandmother had. So I wanted a big family. And I had talked to Bob before we got married about having a big family. And he said, what do you call big? Because, see, his mother was one of 18 and his dad was one of 12. And I said, six. And he took a deep breath and he said, okay, that sounds okay. And uh, I think my God has a sense of humor, too, because he looked down, saw the number upside down, and sent me nine. Uh, because I didn't request any of them. Uh, but uh, we had four little girls straight in a row, and now I knew why he drank. Every man needs a son, so he needed this little boy. So Robbie and Rusty were born a year apart. And on Robbie's second birthday, um, I went over to the drugstore to get some candles for his cake, and they had this little battery-operated razor there, and I thought it was real cute. So I bought it, took it home, put batteries in it, and gave it to him. And on, he opened it up and pushed the button, and it buzzed. And he looked up and he said, what is it? And I said, honey, it's a razor. You shave with it. And that little fellow put his leg up on the chair and pulled his pants leg up to shave his leg. He did not know what a man did with a razor. And I filed suit for divorce the next morning. (laughs) If this man was not going to be a father to these six kids, I couldn't support any more than this, so I was out of there. And I did this a lot. I worked off and on between these pregnancies for an attorney, and it was real easy to type up my papers and just slip them in the stack that he took over to file. And uh, that the lawyer took over to file at the courthouse. And so I filed suit for divorce every time his drinking got out of hand. And he would always say, honey, what do you want? And I'd say, I want you to quit drinking. And he'd say, well, that's all you want, I'll quit. And he would. And, I, you know, I had this little bit of control. And uh, that much control can kill you. Because uh, it almost killed me. Uh, we did this a lot. Uh, we had a stack, I know, in that lawyer's office that deep in divorce papers. But uh, Bob was never serious about it, and neither was I. I just wanted to scare him, you know, into not drinking. Um, he would go back to drinking, and it wouldn't be bad for a little while, and then it would get bad. And you know we did a lot of kissing and make it up, because I've already told you that. Uh, but um, here we have six little children, and my brother-in-law stumbles into the AA office and finds help. He didn't, it didn't even go to a meeting. He just stumbled into the office and asked for help. And they took him out to his mother's home. And the AAs came two by two, 
because there weren't any treatment centers in the, in the late 50s. And they, they took him to his mother's home, and they would come and they'd, they'd change the beds, they fed him, they gave him baths, they took care of him for about eight days. And I was really impressed with this. I would go down to my mother-in-law's, and I wasn't really crazy about her, but I would go down there just to sit at the table and watch these guys come and go because I was so impressed by it uh, that they would do this. And uh, when Norman got better and got on his feet and was able to go to a meeting, uh, then he started going to meetings. And uh, about three weeks later, he came back to our house, and he went to borrow Bob's sports jacket, a shirt, and a tie. Well, now, when Norman borrowed stuff from us, he never returned it. He hopped it. And so I wasn't too anxious to give him Bob's sports jacket. And uh, I said, tell me what you want it for. And he said, I'm going to look for a job. Now I was impressed because Norman didn't work. He just drank. And I said, tell me about this thing that you're going to and those people. And he said, put the coffee pot on. And I did. And he sat there and he told me what he knew of AA and what he knew of himself in AA. And he said, you know, he says, when we'd come to, when I'd come back off one of them big drunks and there'd be a first communion and everybody would be sitting around drinking a beer and somebody would hand me a beer, he said, you were always the one that said, don't take that first beer. And uh, he, he says, because you said it would get me drunk. And he said, you were right. Well, I hadn't been right. I don't know about anybody else living in an alcoholic home, but I hadn't been right for so long. To hear those words it just was heaven. And uh, he said, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. One drink is too many, and 10,000 is not enough. And I thought, what a profound statement. I thought it was beautiful. I've heard it many, many times since, but it still is a profound statement to me because it is that first drink. Uh, it's the first angry word for me that gets me crazy. The first angry word that slips out is what gets me crazy. That's my slip. Uh, but um, I loaned him the jacket and the shirt and the tie, and he did get a job, and uh, he was just doing beautifully. And uh, I kept telling him he was going to have to get Bob to go to these meetings. And he was back at our house another time, and I told him, I said, Norman, you've got to get Bob to take him to one of those meetings. And he said, it doesn't work that way. He has to want this for himself. He'll have to call me and ask me to go to a meeting. And uh, so I said, hell will freeze over before he asked to go. And he said, then hell will have to freeze, honey. And he wouldn't do it. And so I waited and bided my time. Uh, Norm and Bob were going fishing, and this was my time. I waited till Bob came home at his usual time, 2 o'clock in the morning, and that's when we had all our discussions. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, I, I waited for him, and I said, he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not up to fight. I said, I just wanted to talk to you a minute. I said, do you know that you're going on this fishing trip with Norman, and he is doing so good, and you're going to get him drunk. Won't you be ashamed of yourself? And he said, I am not going to hurt my brother. I think this AA thing's good for him, too. He says, I would never do anything to hurt him. And I said, why don't you do something to help him? And he says, what can I do? And I said, well, if you would call him and go to one of those meetings with him, maybe you'd find out how to help him stay sober. 
And he said, if it would help my brother, I'd do it. And I said, well, it would, so why don't you do it? And he says, I tricked him into AA. I don't really believe that. Um, but he did go. Norman was delighted when he called. And he came racing by that night to pick him up, and they went off to a meeting. And that night when they went out the door, I waved goodbye. Because, you know, any other time he went out the door, it was usually with a fight. But uh, I waved goodbye to him. You know, this is wonderful, dear. Uh, go off to your little meeting and come home. And sure enough, about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, the car pulls in the driveway. And I had baked the cake and put the coffee pot on because I figured Norman would come in and finish the rest of the saving part. And uh, it didn't work that way. Uh, he came through the door. Bob just stormed through the door and stuck his finger right there under my nose. And he said, you will never take another night out of my life. He said, I can't help my brother stay sober. And he turned took the car keys off the chain there and started out the door. Now, mind you, that hadn't happened. I had never let him go out that door with those car keys without a fight in the last four or five years. But that night I let him go because now I knew where there was help, and if he was too far gone to get it, I would go and get it for him. And so I called Norman and told him Bob didn't get much out of that meeting, and he said, no kidding. <laughs> and uh, my arrogance, I don't know how the AAs put up with me in those days, but they loved me in spite of myself. Uh, but uh, I told him, I said, but we want to go back to a meeting uh, with you again. And he says, well, I'm going to my home group tomorrow night. Do you want to go to that? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I'll be by to pick you up. So I told Bob that Norman had called and said we had to go. So we were both ready to go on Friday night. And uh, Norman came by and picked us up and took us out to the room. It's about half as big as this. And um, we came in a door right over here. And this, back in this corner was this gorgeous redhead. I mean, she was a Rita Hayworth lookalike. Legs from the floor up to her armpits. And she starts moving and then starts running towards us. She grabs my brother-in-law, who's separated from his wife and three children, and she hugs him and kisses him. And I doubled up my fist, and I thought, don't reach for mine, sister. <laughs> now, I didn't want him, but I wasn't going to give him away. And she turned to Bob, and she said, you must be Norm's brother, Bob. And then the humiliation. I mean, I could just feel the red the, the, wash over me. And, I, and she said, uh, because I thought he'd been talking about us. And then she turned to me and she said, well, honey, are you going to stay down here with us drunks or go upstairs and learn how to live with your drunken husband? Well, that was, there was no choice there. I had no <laughs> intentions of learning how to live with a drunken husband. So I did what all of us who have never had any recovery. And, you know, I, presume, I was not an Al-Anon. I was the spouse of an alcoholic. But I was not an Al-Anon until I walked through the doors of these meetings and started attending meetings on a regular basis and got a sponsor and tried to work these steps in my life. And that, so I wasn't an Al-Anon for a long time. 
uh, you see, I couldn't do those things. But I did what we non-alcoholics do best. I put on my other face and smiled and said, oh, I'm going to stay here with him. He needs me. <laughs> and he hadn't needed me for two years prior to that night. Because there are two years and eight months between Mary Rose and Missy. So, <laughs> I, you know, our documentary proof. <laughs> so I'm in the doors. This, this beautiful AA lady let me go. <clears throat> and I ended up on the front row. I have no idea how I ended up there. But Bob was back with his brother a few rows back. And I've always resented that. I'm still working on that resentment that I didn't get to elbow him through that talk. Uh, I've heard all the other speakers talk about elbowing the alcoholic through the first AA talk, and I didn't get to. I really resent that. Uh, but I didn't need to elbow him after a few minutes because it seemed to me that this AA man talked about his wonderful wife, how she had kept the home together, the kids in school, the food on the table. I just, I mean, I saw flags waving behind that man. I heard onward Christian soldiers, and I'm telling you, if they'd have wanted me to roll, I'd have rolled right down there on that aisle. I had found it. I had found Shangri-La, this perfect place where perfect people lived, and I was going to get into it if I had to lie, cheat, or steal. I was going to get there. And that's how I felt about it. Anything that get him up in front of a room full of people, to tell them how wonderful I was? Oh, my, I would have done anything to get him there. And so I, I was delighted that night. And all the way home I talked about this speaker and what he'd said, blah, 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 you know. And then I kept using the phrase, you alcoholics. And when we got home and uh, got in the house and shut the door, he turned on me like a bear and he said, don't use that phrase again. And I said, what phrase? He said, I'm not an alcoholic. And I said, well, sure you are. <laughs> and he said, you didn't hear anything tonight. He says, because I heard that man say that nobody can tell that someone that is an alcoholic until they make the admission themselves. And I said, oh, he didn't say that. And he said, yes, he did. And, you know, I went back the next week to find out that he had said that. So, I, you know, you only hear what you want to hear and when you're coming to these meetings the first time. Uh, you're only capable of hearing what you, what you want to hear. Uh, the good stuff just goes right over the top. But um, I loved this AA thing. I loved UAAs. And I went back again and again and again. I took in sewing from the teenagers. That was the year that the skirts went from down around your ankles up above your knees. And those little teenagers had all these skirts, and they wanted them hemmed. And so I'd take in hemming so I could get to meetings. I made a lot of meetings, but they were AA meetings. Because, you see, I loved you alcoholics. I'd go in the room, and you didn't say, what did you do this week? Uh, you said to me, how are you, honey? And you'd pat me on the shoulder. I could live a week on one pat. You know, because I needed some sympathy. I needed some somebody to feel sorry for poor pitiful me. At least I thought I did. And I could go forever on these little pats and these little things. Now, I didn't like you hugging me. Because I had, you know, the only man I had ever allowed into this intimate circle of my life 
had hurt me as bad as I'd ever been hurt. And I wasn't allowed to, going to allow anybody else in that circle. I didn't even want the women hugging me. And uh, so when they would reach out, I would grab their hand and shake it way up there like that, you know, and then back off. And people were kind, and they let me do that. But I went to a lot of AA meetings. I went, I went to close AA meetings. Nobody asked me if I was an alcoholic. I just went in, sat down, put my dollar in. It was a quarter back then. I'd be lying if I said a dollar. It was a quarter in the basket and left when the meeting was over. But I went to a lot of AA meetings because I loved you alcoholics. You were so kind and so understanding. And the, what your last words always were to me was, you come back, honey. Things will get better. And I believed you. But there were two little old gray-headed ladies came out to that group on a Friday night that I loved to go to. It was my first home group, the Pleasure Ridge group. And uh, there wasn't any Al-Anon there, which I guess is why it was a very important, nice group for me. And uh, they got on either side of me and they said, we're going to start an Al-Anon group here. And I said, oh, that's nice. And they said, uh, we understand you're not an alcoholic. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, it's at home. Uh, but uh, as soon as I get in here, then, uh, you know, I'm not going to be here anymore. And uh, they said what I've always believed was a lie. They put on, on either side of me now, they said, honey, you come with us and we'll help you. Well, I went like a lamb to slaughter. Got up there in that little old dormer room in the attic. Why do AAs always put us either in the basement or the upstairs hot rooms? But I was up there. There was three men at that table. There was these two little gray-headed ladies, another lady, and me. And they started the meeting off, much like Jenny did, except they didn't read the concepts back then. They, I don't even know if they had them back then. <laughs> But the point is, they didn't read them at that time. They read the steps and the traditions. And then they wanted to have a discussion on character defects. Well, I didn't have any, thank you. So when it came my turn, I passed. Mainly because if I had indulged in more than five-word sentence, one of them would have been one of those little colorful words I used to talk to Bob with. And I couldn't catch these words sometimes. You know, sometimes they'd just fly out, and I'd be grabbing for them, and they'd be out there. And I'd, I knew this, so I had to be very careful. But when you don't have any character defects, and when you are a know-it-all, it's so hard to ask for help. So hard. You know, I believe Al-Anon's the only place where perfect people go and get sick. <laughs> Because God knows I thought I was perfect when I got here. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me that his quit drinking wouldn't cure. And I believed that with a, with a passion. Uh, I also believed that if I could hurt him bad enough and make him feel pain like I was feeling, then he would quit hurting me. I believed that. That was a principle. Those were the two principles I operated on in my life. And you told me in Al-Anon that I could never hurt anyone into loving me. That if I, I would have to show them love and consideration so they could feel it and return it to me. 
I didn't buy that the first couple times I heard it, but I did hear that here in Al-Anon. But I didn't know that men were rare things in Al-Anon because these three men were very active. Uh, One led me right into service work. Uh, I say led me. He tricked me into service work. He would. He asked me one time if I could go with him to the intergroup uh, a meeting, and I said, "Well, yeah, I'll see if I can work that out." So I went with him on the first Tuesday of the month, and uh, the next first Tuesday of the month, he called and said, "I can't make it. Will you go?" And I said, "Well, sure." So I went, and I went, went ever since. And then never went to another intergroup meeting. He did the same back in our days. In those early days, we had uh, state assemblies rather than area assemblies. And uh, uh, he never went to another one of them after he got me in it. So I didn't know men were rare. Uh, but I'm grateful for those men because, you know, when I would complain about what Bob was doing and blah, 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 and this one man, uh, was, as we were sitting over coffee one night uh, at somebody's house, and he said, he said, you know, Juanita, he said, you do a lot of complaining about Bob, but he does work. He says, maybe not every day, and, you know, and has a few bad days, but said he does work. And he said, you know, when I get in the car in the morning and I hit Dixie Highway, he says, you have no idea how many times I think about turning south instead of north towards my job. And he says, just driving south and forgetting I have all this responsibility and all this, this stuff here at home. And he said, and he says, he fussed about when he takes these little fishing trips. And he said, you know, he says, when he's out there on that water, he is really at peace. He doesn't have the stress that, that he had. And I said, what about me? When do I get to get out from under this stress? And he said, well, I don't know. He says, I guess that's a personal job you're going to have to work on. So I did, I did love the, uh, the, the Al-Anon men. They were a big help in that group. Um, but these two little old ladies were very apparent. They stayed there at the meetings. Uh, they went, every place I went, this one little old lady was there. And uh, she was not a nice person. She would say ugly things to you, like, uh, you know, what did you do this week? And I'd say, oh, well, I took care of the children, I cooked, I sewed for the teenagers, and I'd give her this litany. And she'd say, no, I'm talking about what did you do with your husband? And I wasn't going to tell her I had beat him up. Uh, I wasn't going to tell her that I, we had fought for the car keys. We played king on the hill with the car keys a lot. Uh, if I had the keys, I was king. And if he was had the keys, he was gone. So <laughs> uh, we played hide and go seek with these billfold. But I wasn't going to tell this little old lady those things, because you see, I wanted to stay with you people. I wanted to be here with you. I could see in your eyes something that I didn't have. Uh, I even looked up the dis- the definition of serenity because I didn't know of personal feelings what serenity was. I'd never had it. And um, so uh, she started telling people she was my sponsor. And I would go right behind her and tell them, no, she's not. Uh -uh. No way. I would never ask that mean old lady to be my sponsor. 
And you know, for 28 years, she told people she was my sponsor. And I finally just gave up and let her have the job. But I'll tell you this. I made that lady work a real good Al-Anon program. Because I kept her on her toes. I was a challenge. Because I'd call her up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, it's not here. And she'd say, you mean that sweet old boy? And when I called him SOB, I wasn't using sweet old boy. And she would, see, this woman never had an unkind word to say about an alcoholic. She knew instinctively that it was a disease. She knew they were sick. But she just, uh, she never had a kind word to say to an Al-Anon. And for 28 years, she never said a kind word to me. Now, since she's been dead, there have been people come up and tell me that Hallie thought you were wonderful. She loved you. And I thought, she sure kept it hidden well. (laughs) But I loved her. I really did. Um, But it finally took... See, I'm going to these AA meetings, and I'm listening to what happened to you right before you got sober. Because they told me you had to hit your bottom. Or a crisis. So whatever happened to you that night happened to Bob the next day. Because I was going to create his crisis or create his bottom. And uh, one night a couple had come up from uh, Owensboro and uh, she had said, talked and said when she hit him in the head with a cast iron skillet, he came to in the hospital and called AA. And I'm in Winn-Dixie the next day, and I've got a cart, and I've got, I've got six kids at home. And I'm, I've only got this couple of hours to buy groceries and get home with them for the whole week. And I've got two things in my cart. One's a round cast-iron skillet, and one's a square cast-iron skillet. <laughs> I have never understood why I had two of them. And I'm, I'm begging some psychologist out there, come tell me what the hidden meaning is. I'd love to know. But... I'm running down the aisle towards the checkout line, and this lady catches my arm, and it's this beautiful red-headed AA lady. And she grabs hold of me, and she says, I have run you down three aisles. Where are you going? And then she looked down in my cart, and she looked up in my eyes, and she said, oh, no. And I said, oh, yeah. (laughs) You can visit him in the hospital tomorrow. And she said, you're going home with me. And I bought those skillets now. She wasn't that strong. I got those skillets. But she took me to her house and put the coffee pot on. And this beautiful lady did what you AAs do the world over. She, did, she told me her story. She shared her life and her story with me. And the important part of this was that this lady lived in our community, went to our church, And she had been drinking in the same piano bar that Bob was drinking in then. And she shared with me. And I can remember she talked about the loneliness of an alcoholic. She said, you think he's down there having fun, but he is so alone in that crowd. And I can remember just just sobbing and saying, I don't know what kind of aloneness you're talking about, but you should be locked in a house with little bitty people down around your knees and no one to talk to. I can't tell my friends what's going on. I can't tell my mother and dad. They'd have killed him. 
and it, eventually they got to that point. Uh, you know, there's no one I can talk to, no one I can share with, and I am I suffer loneliness. And she looked, took my hand across the table, and she said, "I know you do, but I don't understand your loneliness. But there are people in that Al-Anon room that are waiting to help you if you'll just reach out." Well, I wasn't going to tell those people what I was doing at home. I was afraid to. The fear was so great. And they say we're only as sick as our secrets. Well, I was really sick at that time. I wish I could tell you that when I left that lady, uh, that I went and opened up at my Al-Anon meeting and everything's been wonderful ever since. But I had a long, I had a lot more hurting to do because, you see, I've learned everything I've learned in Al-Anon through pain. I wish I could say, I wish I could pick out one thing and say I learned that and didn't have to suffer any pain because I learned it by example. That's not happened from us the first day we walk in that door because we find out we're not alone, we didn't cause it, we can't control it, and we sure aren't going to cure it. Uh, now, I, I, bought, I loved not causing it, but I didn't like that not controlling it or cure it because I thought I was still going to be the power that was going to get make things better in our life. Um, I went to a, th- th- this is how I went to meetings. I didn't I didn't listen to the twelve steps because they did not apply to me. The word alcohol in there took it out of context for me. I didn't even drink, so why would I pay attention to that step? That my life was unmanageable. Get real. I've got all these little children. I had the PTA president, the alternate president, a room mother in two classes. My life is, I am on schedule all the time. Don't talk to me about unmanageability. Uh, now, I was putting bread in the freezer and salt in the oven, uh, but that didn't count. Uh, it took a place where I went to school one day. Now, my children are, I'm going to Al-Anon, and our oldest daughter is slipping into Al-Ateen meetings. Uh, she was nine years old, but uh, they, they welcomed her. And uh, I wasn't too crazy about this kid going to Al-Ateen because things were so bad in our house, and I was afraid she'd go in there and tell them, and I'm telling them everything's fine, just fine. And I didn't want that happening, so I drilled her before she went, don't talk about your parents. And she'd come home from about the third meeting, and she'd put her finger up, and she says, we don't care about you. <laughs> and uh, so she was going to Alateen. Uh, Bob's still drinking, but he does go to meetings. You know, when I get really, really, really on a rampage, he'll say, if you want me to quit, I'll quit. And he does for about 10 days. And uh, still doing this. And I'm still going down the, you know, that bridle path to insanity thinking I've got some control. Uh, we ended up with going to, I went to school one day uh, with the oldest daughter and went up to, they asked me to come up for a parent, uh, you know, a teacher's conference. I went up and sat and talked to the teacher and she showed me all Sunday's papers and I said, these aren't my daughter's papers. And she said, yes, they are. And she said, you know, Miss Wessoff, I didn't know you so well, because <laughs> I was everything to all the people. Uh, she says, I would think there was a drinking problem in your home. And I said, now what makes you think that? 
And she says, because Cindy acts exactly like I did when my dad drank. She says, I hated my mother for making us live in that hell. And I just, that's all I heard. I don't remember telling her goodbye. I just know I got up, got in the car, drove downtown, and filed suit for divorce. This time, I meant it. And I think the alcoholics have a built-in radar for when we are serious about something, when we're not just bluffing to get them to do something. Because that was when they served Bob with the papers, and he packed up a half. I thought he packed up everything he owned, but it was only about half, and put it all in the car, in the trunk, and he left. And his last words to me were, what is it you want? And I said, I want you to quit drinking. And he said, I'd rather be dead than face a life without drinking. And he drove away. And you know, I believed I'd never see him again. Well, they're just like bad pennies. They always turn up. (laughs) And sure enough, uh, three and a half weeks later, uh, he comes to the back door in the morning, and his key didn't fit the lock, and I wouldn't open the door, and I told him through the door, my mother has warrants taken out against you. Go away. And uh, so he said through the window, what is it you want? And I said, I want you to quit drinking. And he just shrugged his shoulders and turned and walked away. And uh, so that was a Friday in November of 1962. And he said, uh, so I was getting ridge that night to go to my regular Friday night Pleasure Ridge group uh, uh, meeting. And uh, when uh, I uh, heard this big crash downstairs... And when you have seven little bitty children and you hear a crash, you move fast. And I grabbed a robe and raced down the steps. And when I got down to the side door, there the door laid on the floor. Bob's on one end and my mother's on the other. And they're screaming at each other. And I turned around and went back upstairs because it was not my problem. I was not involved in this. And I started to get dressed, and I got as far as uh, pearls and a sweater and a slip, and that's all I had on, when I heard the kids screaming. And I went out in the hallway, and Cindy is hurting the baby brothers and sisters, six little baby brothers and sisters. And uh, I said, what are you doing? And she says, Mom, Daddy's got a gun. He says he's going to kill somebody. And I said, Honey, your Daddy's not going to kill anybody. And she said, uh-huh. She says, he just went up in the attic. So to prove her wrong, I opened the door and stared up the barrel of the 12-gauge shotgun. And I said, what are you doing? And he, he looks over the barrel of this gun and looks straight into my eyes. And he said, honey, your mother's called the police. She wants them to take me away. And I can't live without you and the kids. And I finally understood the concept of a disease. I really did. I understood that my husband was sick, that he didn't want to be this way. And I, but I shut the door, and I went downstairs. <laughs> and when I got to the landing, my mother was coming out of her room with her 410 shotgun. And I said, oh, Mom, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm going upstairs and get rid of the problem. And, you know, I'm an only child. My dad had died two years prior to that, 
and or no, that, that early spring of that year. And it was just Mom and I and, and Bob. And I thought, you know, if I let her go, maybe they'll kill each other and the kids and I could live in peace. <laughs> That's how sick I got. I've been going to meetings for two and a half years. But you see, I hadn't taken the first step. So Bob helped me take it that night. Because we came to... Uh, I did put my arm up to stop her, and I said, No, Mother, you're not going up there. We're n- you're not going to face Bob with that gun. I said, Even drunk, he's a better shot than you are, so come on. <laughs> and we talked and talked, and I was arguing with her. And this was the moment that the police came to our door. My mother had called the police because there was a man breaking her door in. And uh, they see the woman with a, a, you know, a shotgun and two women fighting over it. So before they ever knew the nut was in the attic, they called out the riot squad. And back in 1962, the riot squad in Louisville was an all-points call on the radios, and every police car in the area showed up. And our house was completely surrounded with police cars. They had the red lights going around like this. They had their doors open. They had spotlights on the house, and the radios were blasting riot on Iroquois Parkway. And I stepped to the door and look out, and I thought, oh, my God, what must the neighbors think? (laughs) I am still concerned with them. You know, isn't this pathetic that I lived my life by what they thought I should do? Well, I I leaned out the door and said, can I call AA? And one of the trees answered, hell, lady, we don't care who you call, because the police were behind these trees with tear gas guns. And uh, so I turned around and went back in, picked up the phone book, and to this day, that church's name is not in bold print. But that night it was. It was in bold print so big I could, I could read it almost in that semi-darkness of that, of that living room. And I dialed that number, and that's when the miracles started happening. Because, you see... Uh, the AAs had the meeting room. The Al-Anons met up in that little dorm room, and the pastor's phone was in the office, locked. We couldn't use it any, any time we were in that building. But that night, the ladies of the sewing circle wanted to set their quilting frame up in our room, and the pastor opened his office so that the phone would be available to, to us. So that was when we started celebrating our miracles. We know, I know God had had his hand in our lives for a long time, but that was the first real miracle of, the, of the, our program for me. Um, they, uh, they answered the phone. I told them what was going on. I said, I need you to talk to Norman. And they said, don't worry, we'll get Norman there. And so in just a few minutes, Norman and a young priest that Bob and I had gone to grade school and high school with, and when we'd gotten married, he'd gone into the seminary. Well, he happened to have an alcoholic in his parish, and he wanted to find out something, how to help him. So he'd gone to an AA meeting, and I don't know that he ever went to another one after that. (laughs) But he was there, and uh, two of AA members came, and the priest went outside and got the police to fold up their tents and go away. Norman went up and got Bob to give up his shotgun. It took both AA members to get my mother's gun. (laughs) 
she was not giving it up that easily. Uh, she, they, then they told me, they said they were taking Bob to Our Lady at Peace Hospital. And I said, we don't have any insurance. I don't even know how I'm going to have, where I'm going to have this baby. And they said, we'll take care of it. And they must have. I, to this day, I don't know what happened over that. But they left, and I thought they were gone. And then I looked up, and Bob's leaning back in the door. And he says, honey, we're just going for coffee. See you in a minute. Bye-bye. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my, we'll be back in the circus again. But he was gone. The house was quiet. I went upstairs, went into our room, stood there in the darkness, and I, I felt like that God had abandoned me completely. I believe that I committed the first sin that, that most of us can only commit, and that's despair of God's love in our life. Um, I just, I just, if he was up there, he couldn't love me and let what had happened happen in our lives. Because up to that point, I still thought I was all right and Bob was all wrong. Uh, I had not accepted the idea that he was sick, not sinful. Uh, I just couldn't do it. It took me a little while. But I remember this little old lady, like she was standing right beside me. I heard her voice like she was right there. And she said, honey, if you're not as close to God as you want to be, you're the one who moved away. Reach out and ask him into your life. Ask him for help. And he'll be there for you. And to prove that old lady wrong, and she wasn't even there, I said the first prayer I'd ever prayed. Um, I was raised Catholic. I recited prayers from the, from the cradle up, because uh, everybody thought it was marvelous that a little two-and-a-half-year-old could say the Lord's Prayer, uh, from, you know, by rote, not by meaning. Uh, but I'd recited prayers all my life, but I had never prayed one prayer. I'd never prayed and meant... Thy will be done. I'd always prayed for my will to be done and gave him instructions on how to do it. Went to Mass every morning. Told God how to run the day. Went back the next day to tell him how he'd messed up yesterday and give him one more chance today. Uh, the arrogance of a person like that just it blows me away today. Uh, I still meet them like that coming in down on, and I love it. I just love them. I, I just grab hold of them, and I say, come on, honey, I'm your sponsor. <laughs> and let them try to get away. <laughs> but I, I said the first prayer I'd ever prayed. I said, God, help me. Not help me get him sober, not help me pay the bills, not help me meet the insurance payment. I always paid that insurance. Life insurance was paid up every month. We might eat beans and corn, but we got the life insurance paid. Because I was sure he was going to die, and I wanted to be a rich widow. Uh, but I stood there in the darkness and had said that prayer, and I felt like somebody poured warm molasses over me. What a comforting feeling to have everything lifted off. You see, I had taken the first part of my first step. I had become powerless. I had given it to God and admitted that I couldn't handle it anymore. I fell across the bed and went sound asleep. When the alarm went off, I realized that I did not know where my seven children were, what had happened to them from the time they said their daddy was in the, uh, the attic. Went running back through the bedrooms, and we live in a big old house. 
And we're back through the bedrooms, and there was, their beds hadn't even been slept in. And I ran to the, it was going past Cindy's room, the oldest, and I noticed that her closet door was open. I closed, and I said, oh my. Ran over to it, jerked the door handle, and it wouldn't open. And so I said, Cindy, are you in there? And her little voice, Cindy was nine and a half years old, and her little voice said, Mama, are you all right? And I said, Yes, honey, open the door. She had taken her six little, seven little baby brothers and sisters into that closet with a couple blankets and pillows, and they had spent the night in total terror that two people with guns might kill them. And because Bob came into this program shortly after that day, we never had to have another night like that in our lives. Uh, if we had nothing else to be grateful for, that would be enough in itself. But God's been so good to us down through the years. He's really been good to us. Bob did come into the program. He came into it feet first. He went to a meeting every night, twice on Saturday and three times on Sunday. And after about three weeks of this, I was madder than hell. <laughs> I don't know what good it did to get him sober. He's still gone all the time. I'm still putting these same kids to bed. And now I've got two kids at Alateen. And I'm in the middle of the floor crying and screaming and having a fit because nothing's changed in my life. And he's going out there and meeting my friends, and they're coming, sending messages home to me. And <clears throat> they walked around me, and they, one of them looked at the other and says, Boy, she needs a meeting. <laughs> and then they went on and helped get the kids to bed. And I calmed down, and that night when Bob came in from the meeting, I said, We need to talk. Well, he got this frightened look on his face because, you see, when I said we need to talk, that meant I was going to talk. He was going to listen. If he didn't agree, we were going to fight. And that was the scenario. That's how things went. But this time, when I told him how I felt, I said, I've got to get back to Al-Anon. I know your AA is important, but I have to go to Al-Anon. And you'll have to do something. You'll have to give up a night of meetings or, or do something, because I have to go. And he gave a big sigh of relief, and he said, Is that what you wanted to talk about? And I said, Yeah. And he said, Oh, good. He says, We'll work it out. And we've been working it out ever since. Because, you see, I walked through those doors the first Friday in February 1960, and I have been an active member in each one of my home groups for these 39 and a half years. And I, so I do have a lot to be grateful for. Uh, and getting to be one of those dinosaurs they talk about around the program. <laughs> but that's okay. I will always feel as young at heart as I did the first time that I went to a meeting and sat by somebody who was having the pain that I had had. And I was able to talk to them and tell them what I did to get away from that pain. I will always be that young at heart in this program. I hope I stay that way. I hope I never forget that if I see you in pain and I've been there, I can share with you. I hope I never forget to do that because it's real important. 
to me that I stay young in this program. Uh, I do att- attend a lot of meetings. Uh, we go a lot of places. We're, God's been very, very, very good to us. Uh, sometimes we have angels unawares amongst us. And uh, this, this past week, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that was made known that right here in Atlanta one an angel that you would never suspect had wings and a halo was responsible for us going to California doesn't that sound wonderful <laughs> and you know these are things that uh, we never would have had uh, if I just went to my home group and never went to another home group I would never have met all the people in Louisville that I know if I just went to my home group and didn't come to conventions, I would never have met all the people that I look around this room that I see their faces and of, of loving friends, of people that I've been with on several occasions and that I feel like we know each other from, you know, from the first time you hear a story, you feel like you're lifelong friends. At least I do. This is my take on it. And these are all my opinions. Remember everything I've said is my opinion of how it works. Uh, I don't speak for Al-Anon. I just speak and try to share my experiences, my strength, and my hope with you. Um, You know, we just recently had a terrible disaster out in Colorado. It was really tragic. And we all prayed for the children that were killed. We prayed for their parents. And some of us even prayed for the boys and the the parents of the boys that did the mayhem. And uh, then we sat and listened to all these commentators on the television telling us that it was the school's fault, it was the principal's fault, it was the parents' fault, it was the, the law's fault, and all these things. But if you stop and think about it, just think about it for one moment. 1,900 and about 95 kids ran out of that school, and as soon as they were safe, they fell to their knees. And they thanked God for their safety. And then they prayed for the safety of a brother or a sister or a friend in that school. We're doing something right. I believe with all my heart that as long as we stay in this program and we share this program with our children and our families, that we are doing something right. And all I can tell you is I thank you for having us here and I know, today I know two things about me. I know that I'm a member of Al-Anon in good standing, and I know my name's Juanita. Thank you.